The Source of Truth is an audio recording of Pastor Ronnie Love sharing Christian encouragement and biblical truth. We hope this podcast can help make your path a bit brighter today. Psalms 119.105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Genesis chapter 43, as we continue in our study through the life of Joseph. Now, as um, if you're just joining us, you're new to this, we are, we're getting kind of towards the end of the story. And uh, so the brothers had gone to Egypt and they're looking for food. They got there and they, they bumped into or met what they did not and still to this point don't recognize as Joseph. Their brother, of course, he recognized them. He recognized who they were immediately. And, and so it's kind of run them through a bunch of tests. Well, they were sent home. They bought the food and they were told to bring back their younger brother, Benjamin, which their father was not going to allow. And so Simeon was kept in jail until they came back. Well, what we're going to read is a little bit is Simeon was apparently in jail for quite a while. And, uh, and we talked last time about just how fear can drive us to do some amazing things. Well, I want to evaluate, look, just look at the story a little bit. And there's one great principle that I hope, you know, we mentioned, I think it was Sunday morning, Sunday night, that I hope that the gospel and the redemption, redemptive work that it does in your life is not something that uh, you have forgotten. It's not something that we grow used to or we grow... Um, callous to or indifferent. Well, I know, I know, I got saved and redeemed. I hope you understand that. We're going to talk a little bit about that today. So Genesis chapter 43, beginning in verse 1, it says, And the famine was sore in the land. And it came to pass when they had eaten up the corn which they had brought out of Egypt. Now, they had been sent home with Joseph with food. They brought home the food. Remember, the money was still in there, but they brought it home and were supposed to go back and get Simeon. They didn't. And so they stayed and they ate until all the food was brought to them was gone. They were running out of it. Now they're talking about going back. This is, I don't know how long it was, but this is why, uh, this is how long Simeon had to wait in jail. Um, so when it came to pass, in verse 2, when they had eaten up the corn which they had brought out of Egypt, their father said unto them, Go again, buy us a little food. And Judah spake unto him, uh, unto him saying, The man did solemnly protest unto us, saying, Ye shall not see my face, except your brother be with you. So Joseph had commanded, listen, now we understand why Joseph wanted to see Benjamin, you know, the brother of his mother, uh, his pure brother, and he really wanted to see him, and he understood the value it had with Jacob and his father, and so he just was excited to see him and wanted to see how he was doing. Um, in verse 4, if thou, wilt send, if thou wilt send our brother with us, we will go down and buy thee food. He said, listen, if we, if we go down there without Benjamin, it's pointless. The, the, the man who gives us the food won't even see us. And so if Benjamin doesn't come, there's no point going back to Egypt. Verse 5, but if thou wilt not send him, we will not go down. For the man said unto us, you shall not see my face except your brother be with you. Verse 6, and Israel said, or Jacob said, wherefore doubt ye so ill with me? has to tell the man whether he had yet a brother. So Jacob gets frustrated. He's not frustrated, you know, I, I look at this. Why isn't he frustrated over Simeon in jail? Why isn't he frustrated over the scenario? And all he says is, he starts yelling him, why in the world would you tell them you had another brother? Um, if everyone's wondering when you get frustrated or fearful, or you begin to hope and think of things in, 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 a, in a illogical manner. It's really what it was. Why would it be a big deal? Why would they assume by telling him that he had a brother that this would happen? And Jacob's just, as far as he's concerned, he's lost Joseph, his favorite. Now he's lost Simeon. And more than likely, he's about to lose Benjamin. That's how he views it. And he's looking at all of this in the midst of a famine where there's very little he can do about it. All of this is just heavy in his heart. And so as we do when we're grievous, as we do when we're fearful, we make decisions and we make comments that are often 
irrational, illogical, and unfortunately, that's why we've said a while back and when we're talking about being in the center of God's will, never ever make a decision when discouraged, never make a decision when overwhelmed or fearful, because you're likely going to make a bad decision based upon overdriven emotions, based upon uh, circumstances outside your control or the fear of what they could be. All of that is something we really got to be careful with. So Jacob is, you know, he's, it makes sense in his fearful, frustrated, and in a grievous state. Um, Verse 7, And they said, the man asked us straightly, our state and our kindred, saying, is your father yet alive? Have ye another brother? And we told him according to the tenor of these words, could we certainly know that he would say, bring your brother down? So simply what happened was, Joseph asked, of course, it makes sense to us. Joseph knew, knew the story, knew the family. And they're like, he asked his very specific questions. What are we going to do about it? Verse 8, and Judah said unto Israel, his father, send the lad with me. And we will arise and go, that we may live and do not and not die, both we and thou and our little ones. I will be surety for him, I, and my hand shall thou require him. I, if I bring him not unto thee, and set him before thee, and let me bear the blame forever, for except we had lingered, surely now we had returned this second time. And their father Israel said unto them, If it must be so now, do this. Take the best fruits in the land and your vessels and carry down the man and present a little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh, nuts and almonds. So we get to the end and Judah steps up. And Judah says, listen, let me be the responsible one. I will take responsibility. I will make sure. And listen, if he doesn't come back, you can put the blame on me. He goes, but we need to go so that we can take care of our families. We can feed and we don't die and our families don't die. The family was serious. Listen, it's going to take us time to get to Egypt, get back and running out of food. We really need to do this. We don't really have a choice. Now, what I wanted to do is take a minute and evaluate one one, one section of the story that I find intriguing. And, uh, and it comes down to verse 8. And it says, And Judah said unto Israel, Judah was the one that pled the most for bringing Benjamin. Why is that intriguing? It's intriguing because Judah was also the one that spearheaded the conspiracy to sell Joseph into slavery. Judah was the one that talked his brothers into throwing him in the pit. Judah is the one that started the whole thing. And the reason this entire scenario is happening started because of Judah. You say, well, what's the point? Why is that important? It's intriguing that now, what, 20 years later, whatever it is, uh, Judah is very, very different than he was in that time. Obviously, he's grown, he's matured, uh, he's got his own family. But you know what I see? And Judah made other decisions. At one point, Judah had had an affair with his daughter-in-law and then hypocritically had her killed. Um, You look at this and you think, this man at one point was just a harsh man. Now you see, you begin to see God's hand softening the heart of the probably the hardest one to be the one to take responsibility and move. And all of this had begun to bring a level of redemption to his brother and to prepare him to be usable. And I guess I look at this, and one of the things I look at that's always encouraging is, you know, we look at the world and we say people don't change or people can change. Here's my opinion. If you work hard, you can change, but true change does not come from you wanting to or pushing to or circumstances doing it. True permanent change only comes from Jesus. And I don't mean religion. I don't mean go to church, you know, get a little bit of this. When Jesus gets in your heart, Jesus becomes part of your life and you make him Lord of your life and you follow him, there is redemptive work. There is a redemptive work that Jesus does in your life that changes you from the inside out. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, or Romans, um, in 2 Corinthians, I think it's 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ, in Jesus, he is a new creature, a new creation. Old things are passed away, behold, all things are, are really becoming new. 
And what's saying is, if you're truly saved, you will be a new creation. You won't get a second chance. You'll get a brand new life, a brand new lease in life, a new start. And that's intriguing to me. It's pure redemptive work right there. It's not, hey, oh, I know you messed up, and let's talk a little bit about the mess up. And uh, No, it's literally, I'm not too concerned about your mess up. I know what you were before, and I want to talk to you today about the redemptive work of Jesus. And that's what he does. He brings us a brand new beginning, a brand new life, a brand new everything. Now, for those of you who've been saved for a while, um, it's easy for us, if we're not careful, to look at this. And, and I don't want to say grow old to it, but you understand, we, we, we lose a little bit of really what it meant for God to give us the redemptive work. We've been in it for a while. And, and frankly, with all due respect, it's harder for people that are in my scenario that grew up in church and got saved at a young age. You know what I mean? Harder. A lot of times people who got saved when they were older out of a life without Jesus, I'm not even saying a horrible life of sin, out of life without Jesus, because they were older, there's a very, very clear distinction of what it was like to live without Jesus and what it was like to live with Jesus. And there is appreciation for it. There, there's just something that a lot of times, because you grow up in a Christian home and the rules were there, and so there wasn't this, you know, you were young, there wasn't this massive change in your life. You look back and say, hey, I don't always understand. And it's true. I, I, I cannot fully grasp what it's like to come to Jesus with a life of emptiness and living a life of seeking it out, to finally come to Jesus and see all the difference. I grew up, I was saved at the age of five, and most of my life I've had Jesus. Now, here's what I can do. Let me encourage you for those who grew up similar to the way I did, where maybe you got saved older, but you grew in a Christian home. Either way, you have to say, there's not this massive distinction between. Let me tell you this. Number one, have you evaluated and looked back as you get to know other people and as you watch other people, that you don't have a massive distinction. You don't have a past that you look back and you have to fight to overcome. You don't have this, this misery that beats you up. You don't have, why? Because your parent and the Lord protected you from it. Can you, your testimony doesn't always have to be, I was in horrible sin and look how God saved me. The testimony could be, I was saved from, not out of a horrible life of sin, I was saved from a rough and horrible life of sin. That God, in His grace and His mercy, saved me at a young age. And so I don't have to look back and tell you about all these things that haunt me and bother me. I can look at how God protected me and gave me this. So, and, and, and I'll be honest with you, if you really get an understanding of what sin's like and the emptiness we see in the world, you were saved from that. But for those of you who were not like me, for those of you who got saved as you're older, you, you have an understanding of it. Let me encourage you, let that redemptive work continue to work in your life. Don't let Satan ever drag you back to what your life was like before Jesus, where you feel like it was better, or you feel like you're still not worthy enough. This is a, Christianity is not performance-based. It has nothing to do with how good you are or good you think you are or that you can be enough to, to please God. Yes, the Bible says faith without works is dead, simply meaning my faith will change me and drive me. But faith is a result. I mean, works becomes a result of my faith and trust in Jesus. Faith does not works does not produce the faith. It's not, I grow in faith and I grow in acceptance because of my work. It's the other way around. My redemptive, the redemptive work that Jesus did in my life changes me. I don't change to receive the redemptive work. Very, very, very different. And if I keep that, understand that it changes me and it gives me an understanding of God that I need that redemptive work. But you know, if you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, maybe you're in the religious aspect, you're in church, in any kind of church or religion, and you're trying so hard 
to maybe you're saved and you're still trying to think in your mind, I have to be so good and do so much and maybe God will accept me. And maybe, and maybe you still struggle with assurance of salvation or struggle with forgiveness. All of this because somehow you've gotten the idea that Christianity is work-based, Christianity is performance-based. If I do all enough, God will love me. Please understand, God will never love you more, no matter how good you are, than he does now. Because God's love is not based upon my works. God's love is not based upon my performance. God's love is based upon God and his love for me. And that, frankly, is so important for us to understand. The redemptive work is not about me. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus changing me. It's all it's about. From every stage, whether you grew up in this, whether you are new to it in Christianity, whether you've never truly called upon Jesus, recognize the redemptive work of Jesus as a way to honor Jesus and not necessarily me. I get the benefits of it, but the work is for him. It's because he loves us and because he wants us to be part and wants us, wants us to be redeemed and come to him. If you've not done that, I hope you would. I hope you call upon him and I hope you receive and enjoy the redemptive work of Jesus. May we relish in that today. May we relish in the redemptive work of Jesus. May we relish in his forgiveness and, and his grace and his mercy and that the gospel is not just a one-time thing. The gospel is just not a one-time thing that brings salvation, but the gospel is something that is part of every day of my life and it helps me through every day of my life and it encourages me and strengthens me and it's something that I live in and it's a constant redemptive growing, sanctifying work on a daily basis where I become more and more like Jesus through the good and the bad, all through the grace and love of Jesus in our lives. And I hope that if you've not received that, that you would today. And thank you so much for taking time to join us and just to take a few minutes in God's Word to evaluate and continue to look through the story. And it's always encouraging. It's neat. I, I read several chapters up this morning, uh, kind of looking, you know, getting a full idea of really how it goes. We're reminded of all how it ends. And it's just exciting to see the redemptive work of Jesus and how this is a great illustration of it. Thanks for joining us. We hope to see you again uh, tomorrow morning at 11 o'clock. We hope you have a great rest of your day. And we just appreciate you being part of this. We'll look forward to seeing you next time.